Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Today is Trinity Sunday, which marks the end of the first sort of cycle or first half of the church calendar, where we've celebrated each person of the Trinity. We walk through the life of our Lord, celebrating his incarnation, his death, resurrection, and ascension. We further celebrated last week the sending of the Holy Ghost by the Father and the Son to the church. And now, today, as we end this cycle and enter into what we call ordinary time, we are, as Anglican priest John Henry Blunt says, gathered into one act of worship. As the church militant, that is those of us here on earth, look upward through the door that is opened in heaven and bow down in adoration with the church triumphant. Now, some also call today Heresy Sunday because it's very easy once you get talking about God as Trinity and unity and unity and Trinity to lapse into some form of heresy. We can consider the many heretical sects who couldn't quite get the Trinity right. The Arians argued that Jesus was created by the Father and had a beginning in time. The Pneumatomachians, one of my favorite ones to say, accepted that Jesus and the Father were God but denied that the Holy Spirit was God. Monarchianism was a heresy that denied the different persons of the Trinity, insisting on a kind of modalism, that God merely appears as the Father, or appears as the Son, or appears as the Spirit at different times, but that there aren't actually three separate persons. Similarly, Patropassianism was the heresy that the Father and the Son aren't really distinct, and thus God the Father suffered on the cross as Jesus. And a final heresy that tries to explain the Trinity is called tritheism, the idea that the persons of the Trinity are actually three separate gods. Now, why does this matter? Does it really impact your daily life to believe in the Trinity? Did the church just reject the teachings of Arius or the Pneumatomachians or the other heretical sects for political purposes because they wanted to maintain control or were just sticklers for language? Now, it is true that discussions about the Trinity often feel obscure and dense because they require us to plunge into the immense mystery, but hard things are worth doing, and the mystery of the Trinity is not insignificant. I'm reminded of a story about St. Augustine, who, as you might know, is one of my favorite theologians. The story goes that he was working on his book on the Trinity, and he decided that he needed to take a break to meditate on this mystery of the God who's three and one and one and three. And so he went for a walk on the beach, as you might do if you have writer's block. And there he encountered a child who had dug a really small hole in the sand by the waves and was scooping the water into the hole. So Augustine asked him, what are you doing? And the child remarked that he was trying to scoop all of the water from the ocean into this one small hole that he had dug on the beach. Well, Augustine remarked that this was impossible because the sea is much too large and the hole is much too small. And the child replied, Indeed, but I will soon draw all the water from the sea and empty it into this hole. Then you will succeed in penetrating the mystery of the Holy Trinity with your limited understanding. (laughs) The child was right. We will never perfectly comprehend the Trinity. We have to use language of analogy, like Father and Son, for our minds to even begin to comprehend what God is. 
But just because this is difficult doesn't mean it's not worth doing. In fact, I would argue that while theological writings, church councils, and creeds are beneficial, they're not the means, they're not the ends themselves, rather they're means to the ends of prayer. Prayer, according to the great Anglican priest Martin Thornton, is a term for any process or activity qualified by a living relation between human souls and God. Dogmatic statements of theology then aid that relationship because they help us know more about the God that we're praying to. Very similar to when you begin dating someone. You want to learn all about them. But that's not a purely academic exercise to get to know someone. It's relational. You jump into it with your whole being. And so similarly, as we learn about God, we don't do it purely academically Because any acquired academic knowledge is absolutely worthless unless it serves this relational element of prayer. This is why it's such a travesty that over the course of the last century or two, there's been a stark divide between the academy and the church, and that many academic theologians study religion, but they sure don't practice it. A good theologian is, before anything, a person of deep and robust prayer. And if you think about who did theology in the church for centuries, it wasn't done in ivory towers. The best theologians of the church were churchmen, people of prayer. St. Paul, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Anselm, St. Athanasius. Notice how they all have saint affixed to their name. This is because they weren't just thinkers. They were believers and doers. What they learned and what they taught Help them live holy lives. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity, its fundamental thesis, is that God is complete in himself. The relations between the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are perfect love for the others. They have no need of anything outside of their relations. They are complete. But something that keeps me up at night is, well, why did God create the world then? He didn't need it. And the only answer can be that he created us out of an overflowing and outpouring of that love shared between Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Because we have been created from him purely out of his goodness, we owe him worship. Now, to worship is to render someone what is due. If you read the old English prayer books like the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, in the marriage ceremony, the husband actually pledges to worship his wife. And in England, judges were often called your worship, because worship means merely to render someone what's due. And we owe different people different degrees of respect and dignity. This is something we all sort of naturally comprehend. You stand at attention for the president, or you stand as the judge enters the courtroom. But God isn't like the judge or the president. He is our creator, which means he's worthy of more than just a nod of the head or a slight bow. He is worthy of everything. Because he created us. And so the job of the Christian is, offer to, is to offer their lives as perpetual adoration towards God. Which is what Paul means in Romans chapter 12 when he urges the Romans to present yourselves a living sacrifice. Which we copy during the Eucharistic prayer. Now we get a peek into this idea of constant and perpetual worship in the epistle reading today from Revelation chapter 4. Revelation is a tricky book. Talk about staying up at night. Um, It's a piece of apocalyptic literature. Now, many people associate apocalyptic literature with the end times. 
But really, apocalyptic literature is more about showing reality as it is than it is about depicting the end of the world. Though sometimes the end of the world is a good thought experiment to show us what things really are. In effect, St. John is peeling back the layers of reality so that we can see what's at the center of everything. And so in this exercise, where does he take us? He takes us to the throne room of heaven, where we see these fantastic images. Christ, who looks like Jasper and Sardine Stone, sitting on his throne with a rainbow like an emerald and a glassy sea around it. And he's surrounded by these 24 elders, almost assuredly the 12 patriarchs of Israel and the 12 apostles, and four beasts, who many interpret to be the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all worshiping as thunder and lightning emanates from the throne. Now, there was one thing about the reading that tripped me up this week, and I still don't have a solution to it. But in this scene, if John is the one who's taken up into heaven and he sees the 12 apostles as part of the 24 uh, elders, then John would be a member of that group. Plus, he would be the fourth of the beast. So he's in like three places at once. Let's talk about things that keep you up at night. That kept me up this week. But it's beside our it's out of our scope to go into too much. Because the image that he's really giving us in Revelation 4 is the very heart and picture of reality. Everything revolves around worship. Now, many of us find ourselves in the midst of very busy lives. We go from one thing to another, and our attention is often wrapped by other lesser things like 24-hour news cycles, sporting events, entertainment, and technology. But these things are distractions. Because what we're supposed to be doing here and now is training. Or even more than that, we're supposed to be joining our lives to that worship that's going on in heaven with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. And so we need Trinity Sunday. We need the Apostles Nicene and Athanasian creeds. We need the shield of the Trinity, which can be found towards the back of your bulletin. Not because these things make us more erudite theologians for the ivory tower, but because they help us become a people of prayer who understand that our liturgy points us to this transcendent reality in which we join with the saints in heaven as we adore our Lord. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.